26 down through 29. So I'm going to read last week's passage uh, as well as this week's. Follow along then in the word of God. Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 6. But it is not through as though through the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived uh, children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of his works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. But when we saw, uh, what shall we say then? Excuse me. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends on human, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed on all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. You will say to me then, "Why why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make his power uh, and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles, has indeed, he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. As Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring... We would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Let's pray this morning. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, uh, we come to you this morning and we want to uh, just delight ourselves in you. We want to thank you for your goodness and your awesomeness. We want to give uh, praise and, and honor to you. 
We pray, Lord, that as we deal with this passage of Scripture, that You would open our eyes to, to see the truths of Your Word. That we would uh, delight ourselves in, in You. That we would see the glory of Your majesty. And Lord, we cannot fully comprehend all of Your ways, but help us to trust what Your Word says. And help us to know what we are to know in all of these things. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. We're in a passage of Scripture this morning that starts out with a a very difficult question in verse 19. And this question picks up the flow of the argument that Paul has been walking us through and dealing with. And so last week he used the example of, of Pharaoh, who God says, I've raised up for this very purpose. And remember, Pharaoh, it was considered that his heart controlled the world. He was considered sovereign over all things. He was considered a son of God in that culture. That he had power and might and no one could thwart his hand. And God says, I've raised him up. I've put him here on this earth for this purpose. So that I could display that I am God and he is not. And then the question comes in verse 19. Will you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Our main point this morning is that God has the right to do as he wishes. And let me add a sub-point to that. If he did not save some, no one would be saved. And we'll see that this is the ending of the passage. But God has the right to do as He wishes. And if anybody ever in church history understood this, it was Martin Luther. I haven't read all of Martin Luther's works. I actually haven't read very many of Martin Luther's works. That's probably to my shame at some point. But years ago, I read his book, The Bondage of the Will. And in it, he talks in a very pastoral tone as well. And he says how good and necessary it is for the Christian to understand these doctrines. That God not only knows the future, but that He determines the future. And he goes on and he says, this is how you know you can trust the promises of God. Because God determines, as the Scriptures say, the end from the beginning. In Isaiah, I declare the end from the beginning. My purposes shall stand. And so, when God says something as a promise, I can trust it. I can believe it. Not merely because God knows what will happen, but because God is controlling and governing what will happen. God shapes things according to the counsel of His will, according to His purposes, so that His plans and His glory and His majesty are not thwarted. God has the right to do as He wishes. That's tough for us to get our minds around sometimes. God can do what God wishes. First this morning, because God can do as He wishes, we cannot question His will. 
We cannot call God to account on our own standard and say, God, why have you made me this way? Why are you doing it this way? Because God can do as He wishes. We cannot question His will and take counsel with Him that He should answer to us. And so, if God elects some to salvation, we ask the question here, the question is brought up in the text, but why does God still blame or why does God still judge us? And we mentioned with Pharaoh, Pharaoh being guilty of his, his sin and being raised up though for this very moment. Couldn't God, Pharaoh just say, well, God, you're the one that hardened my heart? Why should I be judged? Why should I be accountable for my actions? This was just a part of your sovereign plan to begin with. I was just doing God's will. Even though God is sovereign over all of life, God is not the author of sin. And so we never have the right when we fall into sin and and stumble to ever say, well, you know, this ultimately was just the will of God. Now, I'm responsible and accountable for my actions. And so, the way that this passage is brought out, you you have this issue with Pharaoh, and the next logical question becomes, why does God still find fault? For who can resist His will? We have a good example of this in Isaiah chapter 10. God says this, Against a godless nation I send Him, the Assyrian king. And against the people of my wrath, I commanded him to take and spoil and seize plunder and to treat them, tread them down like mire in the streets. But Isaiah 10:7. but he does not so intend in his heart, nor in his heart does he so think, but in his heart it is to destroy and to cut off the nations. When people act, and even when they're fulfilling the plan of God, the ultimate plan of God, they still are acting out of their own rebellion. And so here you have this Assyrian king. God says, I've raised him up to judge Israel. And then God says, and I'm going to judge the Assyrian king. Why? Couldn't the Assyrian king just say, well, you know, I was just doing God's will. The heart of the Assyrian king was not to do God's will. The heart of the Assyrian king was, I'm going to rebel against God. I'm going to destroy His people. And God says, oh, you think you're doing this, but I'm the one raising you up. The heart of Pharaoh was to rebel against God, to harden his heart. He was not standing there before God saying, okay, God, I just want to do Your will. He was rejecting God. But God says, I've put you there. I've raised you up for this very purpose. This is exactly like we see at the end of the story of Joseph when his brothers come together and they're worried because their father has died. And Joseph says, you meant this as evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive. Joseph's brothers were doing it, letting Joseph get sold into Australia out of hate, out of despising him, out of evil in their hearts. And yet at the very same time, God had intended from the beginning that Joseph going into slavery, that horrible of evils, would be part of his plan and purpose. 
So you and I are not in a quest, a position to question God or, or call into account His plan. We're the created, not the Creator. So look at chapter 9, verse 20. But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to the molder, Why have you made me like this? This is a a common theme repeated throughout Scripture. That we are created by God. That He is the potter and we we are the clay. And we don't just get to stand before God and say, Okay, God, tell me why you did this. Bring the answer to me. You owe me that. In fact, one of Job's friends, not one of the three friends, but the fourth friend, actually, that we often miss, Elihu, shows up at the end of the book of Job where he finally speaks, basically says to Job, God doesn't owe you an answer. Job has been complaining throughout the book. Now, Job hasn't done any sins, but he he does along the way start to grumble and say, if only I could have an audience with God and explain to God that I am righteous and do not deserve what happened to me. It's that sort of question that we often find ourselves in when bad things happen. Why me? Why me, God? This isn't fair. And Elihu says to Job, Why do you contend against him, saying, He will answer none of man's words? Why are you trying to get an answer out of God? This goes again in Isaiah as well. Isaiah 26.16 says this, You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say to its maker, He did not make me? Or the thing formed say to him who formed it, he has no understanding? Isaiah 45, 9 and 10. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him. A pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, why are you making? What are you making? Or your work has no handles. Isaiah 45.10 Woe to him who says to his father, to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? So think of this imagery here. You are sitting at a potter's wheel and you take one lump of clay and you begin to fashion it. Does the clay suddenly speak up and say, whoa, 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 what are you doing here? Why are you making me this way? Does the pot, when it's formed, get to say, hey, uh, I need some handles here. Why haven't you put handles on? I would be a much nicer pot if I had handles. No. The potter can shape things as he likes. And so God, as the Creator and the Sovereign King, can establish the world and establish His purposes according to His will. Think of this other imagery. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, uh, with what are you in labor? Now think about that. Walking into a woman on labor and trying to argue with her. Well, you know, what kind of child are you having here? Uh, Is it going to have red hair? Is it going to have yellow hair? What are you doing in this hospital room? It wasn't time for the delivery yet. Why are you even having a kid? And and the woman in the middle of labor is going to scream at you, Get out! You don't argue with a woman in labor. My wife has had four kids. I think I have learned that by now. 
But you don't argue with a father. You know, what are, what are you begetting? Well, what kind of kid that you, are you going to have? And, and this is even before we know how biology works. But you as a kid don't get to go to your dad before you're even born saying, well, you know, what am I going to look like? Let me give you my input here. Uh, I'd, I'd like to not have the family trait of baldness. Uh, I'd like to not go gray at a young age. Uh, make sure I get some muscles. I'd, I'd like to have my mom's intelligence. You don't get to pick out those things. What are you begetting, dad, mom? What are you, what are you giving birth to? In the same way, you and I don't get to argue with God. Isaiah 64, 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are the work of your hand. Israel had to learn this in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 18. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Arise, go down from the potter's house and there I will let you hear my words. So I went to the potter's house and there he was working on his wheel. The vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand and he, he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good for the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hands, O house of Israel. Did you ever see a potter sitting at the wheel and he's spinning around and he, and he makes this beautiful dish. And, and maybe he makes this wonderful vase. And, and all of a sudden, he just collapses in the top of the vase. And like he ruins it and it looks, it looks horrible. And you want to jump on the potter and be like, what are you doing? You can't do it that way. It was so beautiful. And then the potter begins to reshape that clay that he's turned over. That vase that he's looked like he's ruined, he begins to shape it. And what you see is that he needed to push the clay down so that he could work it back out again and make it oftentimes into something more beautiful. But even if the potter doesn't do that, even if he wants to make an ugly dish, the potter can do that. And in the life of Israel, God was saying at this time he was going to bring judgment so that he could refashion Israel and shape them. And the potter can do that. Job 9.12, Behold, he, God, snatches away. And who can turn him back? Who will say to him, What are you doing? Nebuchadnezzar confesses this in Daniel 4.35, All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of the heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? The Bible puts the challenge here right to our hearts. You can't go before God and call Him into question. You don't get to say to God in a demanding sort of way, what are you doing? We're not talking about the prayer of reverence that says, help me understand your plans, Lord. Help me see where you're at work. We're talking about the person who brings the challenge. How dare you make me this way? How dare you answer yourself to me? I think if there's one problem 
that we have in the church today is that we bring God down to our level. We make God accountable to us. That the limit to God's power, the limit to God's purposes is only what I can understand. And if I can't understand it, it can't be true. That I should be the one who dictates terms to God. What is fair? What is not fair? What is righteous? What is unrighteous? That I should be the one to make God in my image. Don't let us be that way. God is infinite. God in His in His majesty, in His glory, is awesome. Come before God as, as, as the One who is created by Him. As the One who needs to humble ourselves. As the One who gives worship to Him. We live in a world that tells us that we are the most important and God should bend to our will. That's not the way it is. I yield and bend my will to God. And so God has the right to fashion and create as He wants. Verse 21 of Romans chapter 9. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and the other for dishonorable use? This is the plan and purpose of God in election. Does God not have the right to take out of one mass of of sinful humanity one uh, lump of clay and out of that lump show mercy on whom He wills and out of that lump of clay allow to harden whom He wills? 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8 So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builder has rejected has become the cornerstone. A stone of stumbling. A rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the Word of God as they were destined to do. Notice here the focus is that we do need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There are those who do reject the cornerstone, but it fulfills the plans and the purposes of God. An application this morning that as you come to Scripture and you see the plans and purposes of God, understand your position. Understand who you are. John Calvin said something to the effect of the better we know God, the better we will understand ourselves. And the better we understand ourselves in our lowliness, in our humility, in who we are, the better we will understand the majesty and the glory of God. That Isaiah says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. If you want to remember one phrase, remember this. The finite cannot contain the infinite. It sounds kind of simple, right? Something that is finite cannot contain something that is infinite. Can your mind 
contain all the wisdom and knowledge of God that God has in Himself, in His infinity? No. But God is majestic. It's not wrong then to seek to study and to understand the doctrine of election and the teachings of Scripture in this. But I want to say this. Be careful that you and I don't dictate terms to God. We come before Scripture and we say, what does the Word of God say? And we wrestle with the Word of God. And we say to God, you know, open my eyes. I'm, I'm having trouble understanding this. Help me to see the things that you've put in your Word. That, that's all right and good ways to respond. Even to say, I'm having trouble believing this, but, but help me to understand and respond to your Word. But never come with an air of saying, I know what it has to be. This doctrine of election can't be true because, for whatever your reason might be. Think of an illustration. For those of us that have kids, did you ever have your kids come to you and say, over a decision that you made, that's not fair! Some of you are laughing, so I'm not the only one that it's happened to. And yet, you, in your, your being a parent, have a little more knowledge, a little more understanding of the situation, more reasons that your child in their limited capacity can see and understand. And so you are the better judge of what is fair. You know why you made this decision. Maybe you didn't allow your kids to do something that all of their friends were doing. And the child says, that's not fair, because all they see is everything else that their friends are getting. But you as the parent have a perspective from, from higher above. You see some dangers that they don't see. And so you don't allow them to do something. How much more is it with God? That His purposes are higher. That His wisdom is greater. That His fatherly care is far beyond our own. How dare we think that we can question God? And so part of coming to this understanding of the Word of God here is just to come before God and say, You are God and I am not. And that's really what makes this so awesome. You let God be God. Isn't it much more relaxing that way? Less stressful in your life? Because God is good, and God is righteous, and God is just, and God does not show favoritism. And God works out this plan to show His mercy. And if He didn't save us, if He didn't work His plan in this way, no one would be saved. This brings us to our second point this morning. Because God can do as He wishes, some will go to destruction and others to glory. God has endured with great patience. Look at verse 9.22. And as you think of the doctrine of election, don't think of it as God playing eeny, meeny, miny, moe. You know that game we played as a child, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, and you pick and you don't pick some. But notice the mercy and patience of God. Verse 22. What if God, desiring to show His wrath and make His power known has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. 
When you think of the character of God, think of Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity on the fathers and the children, on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And the contrast there is not to say how people are getting punished, but the contrast is to the thousands He shows mercy. And only to the third and the fourth generation does He bring guilt and consequences. But it says that He is slow to anger. And that is a part of the grace of God. A part of the the common grace that He has for everyone. So first, God has the right to show His wrath and make His power known. God is holy. And in His holiness, He must judge sin. And so part of the plan and purpose of God in making His glory known is He's going to show the world how much He hates sin. So that we would tremble at God. God is not merely a... uh, not some sort of jolly good Santa Claus who just gives these belly laughs. Is majestic in His holiness. And so, God is not a God who flies off the handle. He is slow to anger, but He is going to display His wrath. Notice also it says in our verse, He has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. It is not that God makes pots and and simply dashes them in a fit of rage. He fashions these pots and He holds them and He allows them to live even while they are are living out rebellion. While they are sinning against Him. Even on the wicked, He shows Himself patient and slow to anger. He has a plan before the foundations of the world. Yes. And this includes that some will go to destruction for their sin. But notice that He upholds the wicked. They live and breathe and have their existence because God is patient. He has displayed His patience. And so, God is not the author of sin, but in God's plan and purpose, He uses sin. And He has planned to allow it from before the foundations of the world. And so He creates people and allows them to come into existence who in His plan will sin. And in that sense, they are prepared for destruction. But why does God do this? Why does God show such tremendous patience? I mean, you think about it. And the minute that Adam and Eve could have sinned, or did sin, excuse me, the minute Adam and Eve sinned, God could have wiped them out and He would have been just and fair. But He allows them to have kids. And those kids, some of them are worse until you get to the days of Noah and nobody's righteous. 
And yet God allows this to go on, upholding these, these people with great patience. Look at verse 23. This gives us the purpose or the reason. In order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory. Why does God do it? Why does He make these vessels? Why does He send some to destruction? Because He's showing the riches and the depths of His mercy. The reality is that in our sin, each one of us deserves to be punished for hell. You know what would be fair? You know what would be just? All of us being condemned. And God isn't under any obligation to do anything. God didn't have to send the Lord Jesus Christ God didn't have to let His Son die on the cross. God didn't have to have a plan from before the foundations of the world to save people. But He does. And it shows the depths and His riches of His mercy. Because we all deserve destruction. Because none of us qualify for what God has given us. What do I have in my sin that I bring before God? Nothing. Do I offer things to God and say, you need to save me now because look at how good I am? Look at how you've made me? Look at, look at how I'm responding to you? If God were to leave us alone, no one would be saved. And so, the doctrine of election makes much of God's glory, but it also makes much of His mercy. The ultimate purpose of God is to bring glory to His name within His creation. So that all of us would look and say, who is like God? This awesome potter who fashions things according to His plan and purposes. And when He could have destroyed us all, yet in His goodness and His kindness, He fashioned some and saved us out of the mire of our sin. There is no reason that God is obligated to show mercy. Do you believe that? Like sometimes we know that intellectually, but we don't always know it in our hearts. We get going in our Christian life and you know, things are going pretty well and we start to say, yeah, I'm, I'm doing a pretty good job of following God. But none of this would happen in your life if God had not saved you. And why did God save you? There is no reason in and of yourself that should cause God to save you. I don't know if some of you remember the old uh, Saturday Night Live sketch. Uh, I think it was Al Franken who, di who did it. And he played this goofy character with his hair who would look at himself in the mirror and say, I'm good enough. I'm smart enough. And doggone it, people like me. Sometimes we think that's why God saved us. We were good enough. We were smart enough. And doggone it, God looked down and He really liked us. 
Why does God do what He does? It's the mystery of His sovereign plan. Notice this. Because God then, third, because God can do as He wishes, He is saving a people from around the world or from all over the world. So Paul continues in verse 24. Even us whom He called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So what he's saying is, God is saving people He's elected a people to salvation from before the foundations of the world. And He is calling them to salvation. He uses the Word of God, but most of all, He uses the Holy Spirit to get into their hearts and and draw them. This is what the idea of the call means. This is not God standing like we might call a puppy and and hope that the puppy comes. You Come here, dog. Come here. Come on, Sparky. This is God bringing us into the family calling us sovereignly through the Spirit who who opens our eyes to see the Gospel. And then he quotes Scripture. Indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not My people, I will call My people. Here and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. Paul uses these verses and he applies it to Gentiles. And we don't have time to go into the whole background of Hosea, but the, the application that Paul makes is, here were these Gentiles. Not God's people. And God in His sovereignty has called people who weren't Jewish to salvation. And the Jewish person might look and say, well, weren't weren't we the chosen people of God in the Old Testament? But God in His grace now has taken people who were not His people and called them to be His people. If you don't have Jewish heritage in your background, Sometimes we forget how marvelous it is in the plan of God that He saved us. Our heritage was as pagan and idolatrous as it could come. And God spread the Gospel starting in Jerusalem and going to Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. So that people who had never heard about the tabernacle about Solomon and David, about the promise made to Abraham, have come now and heard not only the Word of God, but also about the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 9.26, And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not My people, there there will be sons of the living God. And this goes back to this idea that, that God has adopted us into the family that God has made us His children. First Peter 2.10 And you who were not a... Once, you who were not a people, but now are God's people, who once had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Why? Because of the plan and purpose of God. Because of His sovereign will. Because of Him. We have come to saving faith. This is true not only in terms of how the Gospel spreads throughout the world. This is true of your life right here, right now. Did you have parents that brought you to church at a young age? Some of you did. And God used that to show you mercy. But some of you, for years, never darkened the door of a church. And God did something to show you mercy. But each one of us needs to remember we were people not of mercy. 
born by nature, children of wrath, dead in our sins. And God, in His graciousness, with this plan that He had from before the foundations of the world, called us and worked out that salvation that Jesus accomplished. He worked it out into your life so that you might come before God and say, I have nothing. But God did everything. Notice where the passage ends, verses 27 and 28, or where at least this section ends. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out His sentence upon the earth fully without delay. And then verse 29, and Isaiah, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us an offspring, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. Offspring goes back to that word that he's used earlier in starting in verse 6 and 7 where he talks about the promise of the offspring, the promise of the seed. That not everyone who was a physical descendant becomes part of the spiritual heritage, part of the promise, part of the seed promise. What Paul is saying is this, if God had not worked to carry out His promise to have a seed, to ensure that some would be saved, to accomplish that salvation in a people, what would have happened to Israel? They would have been wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah. What would happen to us if God had not, before the foundations of the world, chosen us for purposes according only, for reasons known only to Himself, chosen us, according to the purpose of His will. I would come into this world a sinner. I would enjoy my sin. And I would continue in my sin. And everything that people would say to me about Jesus and the Gospel would fall on deaf ears. And I would die a sinner. The point is this. God is in no obligation to show mercy to anybody. Why does God even show mercy? I don't know. But He does. And if God hadn't shown mercy, if God had not made this promise to Abraham and carried it through to Isaac and carried it through to Israel, but not Esau, and carried it through to David, and carried it through to fulfill it in Christ coming, there would be no one who comes to God and is saved. Has the Word of God failed? Paul says no. Look at this passage ends with a listing of the fulfillment of the Word of God. God will show mercy on whom He will show mercy. And He will harden whom He will harden. And if God had not in His mercy saved us, no one 
would be saved. The application is this this morning. God has the right to do as He wishes. But remember the context of your life. That you and I are sinners. And we are deserving of nothing that God has done for us. And so, when you come before God, make God big. A better way to say that would be understand that He is big and infinite and awesome. But in your, in your worship and in your conception of Him and in your lifting His name up in praise, make much of Him. Make Him big. Lift up His name. That He is displaying His glory and His majesty both in judging sin in His holiness, but also in His wonderful mercy, mercy lavishing out love upon sinners. God is good. And God is good all the time. And in every way. And He always does what is right. Let's close in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would be at work in our hearts and in our lives. This is a a difficult doctrine to think about, Lord. That you are, are the potter and we are the clay. You have a right to form and fashion as you see fit. And yet, Lord, we trust in you that you do what is right and well. And that you are saving a great multitude of people from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. And the Gospel is, is going out and people are hearing that, that Christ died on the cross, a perfect sacrifice of sin, and people are coming to saving faith. And we know that it is all because of You, the work of the Father, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit. And we say this to Your honor and glory. You are the great and mighty One who saves people And if we are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, You have saved us. Not because of what we brought to the table. Because we have nothing. But because of Your goodness and mercy. I pray that You would continue to save many people. Children, young people, adults. People in our families, in our circles, in our neighborhoods. Lord, continue in Your great plan to work salvation and use the ministry of the Word to raise people up to new life that is found only in Christ. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. You can stand with us for this last song.